Welcome to the Health Design Podcast. I am your host, Moyes Jiwa. A lot of what happens in medicine is impacted not by the consultation between the doctor and the patient, but by the context in which that consultation takes place, by the site at which it, it takes place, and by the events that surround that experience. My guest on the podcast today is Amy Ma, who has a lot to say about the experience that patients have at the time that they are seeking healthcare and how that impacts on the outcomes for those hospital visits. I'm very pleased to welcome Amy Ma. You're very, very welcome to the show, Amy. I'm so pleased to be speaking with you today. Now, behind any patient advocate is a very interesting story. It's a story of somebody who's experienced something that drove them to do what they do. How did you come to be such an ardent patient advocate? It was the collection of a lot of different experiences throughout my life. The trigger was when I ha- when my youngest child, so I have three kids, the youngest of whom had two surgeries before the age of two. And so I saw a little bit more of the hospital than your usual emergency room visit. And at some point when he had one of follow-up appointments, it happened to be Patient Rights Week in Quebec. And there was an information table and I signed up. And because he was still quite young, I think I was receiving emails for about a year before I finally had the time and space in my life to actually begin to start going to meetings. And just a word about Patient Rights Week and the Family Advisory Forum in the Children's Hospital that I'm with is that it's about informing patients and families about their rights in the healthcare system as well as working together with staff to improve the quality of care and services at the hospital. So during the two surgeries with my son, with his first operation, he was all of four months old and he was exclusively breastfed. And right then and there, there was a bureaucratic and healthcare messaging mismatch because every government worth its salt will say breastfeeding is the best. And here I am with my baby going into surgery, and I'm his sole food source. So the hospital decides that since the baby, who is the actual patient getting the surgery, doesn't need infant formula, they're not giving me a meal either. So I had to scrounge and bring like a frozen entree, (laughs) stick it in the the patient fridge or something like that. And so my intention when I decided to join the family advisory forum was to try and find some way to ad- address that. But as you can imagine, healthcare is so full of silos and rampant bureaucracy that the irony is that to this very day, and he's 12 now, he was under two when he got that <laughs> surgery at four months old. I haven't been able to figure out where or when to start. But sadly, in Canadian hospitals, it's not a unique occurrence, this thing about not feeding the breastfeeding mom when the babies are being hospitalized for whatever reason. That's extraordinary. So if you're a a breastfeeding mother and you bring your child into hospital, what you're saying is they don't feed you while your child's in hospital. Yes, there was the case of another podcast with a doctor here in Canada recently in the past, I don't know, six months. And this woman called in or wrote into Facebook saying, yeah, I was just in the hospital with my twins. 
And I had to subsist on the jello from the nursing station while her kids were hospitalized. Like they didn't feed her, but yet she was breastfeeding exclusively her twins. So it still does happen to this day that because of how bureaucracy narrowly defines who's the patient, that they totally disregard that public health care messaging about doing their utmost to support the, the breastfeeding parent, which is what they should be doing. That's the right thing to do. But they don't do it because there's some bureaucratic thing about what budget comes from where. <laughs> okay, okay, hold on, hold on, roll back, roll back. What were the pediatricians saying about the fact that this child's mother was not being fed? I don't know. I think for that particular podcast, it was addressing food in hospitals in general, and that's probably the subject for another podcast. Mm. But in your it case, not- in your case, your son's doctors would be aware that you were not being fed. They probably would make special allowances, but then it would require the involvement of a social worker. And we were only being kept overnight for mm. observation. So I, I consider myself fortunate that I had the means to just buy a frozen entree or maybe I got my husband to leave it for me when he came in the afternoon. I don't know. But I just remember having that frozen entree and thinking, oh, so if the baby was on formula, you would have given it to him free of charge. But for the fact that I'm his food source, we get nothing from the hospital. I remember that, that I was asking the nursing station. <laughs> yeah, your, your facial, facial expression says it all. Uh, you'll have to pick me up off the ground at the, at the end of this, uh, out of that statement at least. Okay, so there, that's very compelling. That's very compelling. Mm-hmm. And you recognize that there was a problem in the way that healthcare is being organized. But of course, it's not the only problem. And that presumably is what led you to do lots of other advocacy work. What other experiences did you, or the people that you've worked with have that have driven the work that you're now doing? Well, we moved into a new hospital building in 2015. So the first thing that I'm quite proud that we together as a team with the patients committee was able to achieve was they dramatically increased parking for the new facility. We're talking $50 a day for parking that was right by the front door. And I think daily parking in the underground garage maxed out at $30 if you didn't need that front door right in front of the front door parking spot. And so we, as the patients committee, we put forward a complaint to the hospital complaints commissioner on behalf of all families and patients saying, look at this is too expensive. And I'll tell you, one of the parents She was a single mom, three kids. I think the oldest had a combination of cancer and MS. And she told me that there were times that she had to postpone medical appointments for her child because she looked at the mileage and the parking and she didn't have the cash flow that week to make ends meet. So parking fees are a real barrier in certain places, a barrier to accessing care. And $50 is a lot of money. And so we put forward this complaint to the complaints commissioner. The complaints commissioner gave us the green light to escalate to the provincial ombudsman, which is called in Quebec, 
protecteur de citoyens. And the protecteur de citoyens opened an investigation. And finally, the hospital decided, oh, well, maybe we should strike up a working group on parking and include members of the patient committee on that parking committee to see what can be done. And so they scaled back the prices, made it so that uh, you didn't necessarily have to have a diagnosis in order to qualify for parking rates for if you were there for two weeks or one month. Or say if someone needs to go to the hospital regularly every week or every six weeks or so, it adds up after a while, but they can buy coupons in advance for a slight reduced rate for a booklet of like, say, seven or something like that. But those rates are well below even $25. So it was a, it was a reasonable reduction from the original 30 that they could max out on. Because in the beginning, only the first 15 minutes were free and you can't get anything done in 15 minutes, let alone just besides dropping off somebody. Mm-hmm. So now I think they put it so it's like the first 45 minutes or free. Don't quote me on this, but they, ex- they expanded the period of time where it was going to be free. And then the maximum charges don't kick in until way later. So that even if someone is there for two hours or four hours, they're still paying way less than $24, which is the daily maximum after 12 hours, I think. Mm. Did you work out who owns the real estate and why they're able to charge those kind of fees. Because sometimes the the impression you get is it's a private contractor who actually owns and runs the parking lot and not the service provider, and therefore they can charge whatever they like. And somehow they seem to get themselves onto that site. You know, across the country in Canada here, there's even a variation. What I find really shocking is that there are provinces where it's the kind of hospital parking where you get a coupon when you enter and then you only know how much you're going to pay when you exit. So that's one way. There's another way where you actually have to try and guesstimate at the very beginning how much you're going to pay. And then if you don't manage to get out of there on time, lo and behold, by the time you get back to your car, there's a parking ticket fine on your windshield. So those I know are probably run by an outside party, the ones where you have to guess in the beginning how long you're going to stay. But most people don't know (laughs) when they pull into the hospital parking lot. They don't necessarily know, even if it's for an appointment, if they're going to be out of there in two or four hours, because, well, you know, in the hospital, sometimes they just make you wait a long time just to be seen for 20 minutes, right? And it got so bad that it made the national news a few years back. There was a fellow that had cancer And he was so pissed off that he actually took a foam thing to sabotage the parking meter because he was so upset that he was being robbed. In addition to having to go through all the agony and inconvenience of cancer chemo treatment and to have to pay for parking was just adding insult upon injury. You were talking about airport parking rates and the numbers that you... Oh, not airport. This is hospital parking. Correct. But the the prices you're talking about would be not out of place at an airport where you're going on a on a holiday somewhere and presumably have got built into your funds the cost of parking at that place because not everybody needs to go to an airport to go on holiday to Europe. But mm-hmm. lots of people need to go to a particular hospital to get cancer treatment because that's where the treatment is available. And it's mm-hmm. not like they've chosen to take that particular, no. to make that particular trip. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, to what extent were you able to 
get this reviewed nationally? Because presumably this is a scandal. We could only work with our jurisdiction, which is just our network of the McGill University Health Center, and in particular, this downtown site, which was opened in 2015 as the merger of three legacy sites. So they had three legacy sites that used to be dispersed somewhere in and around the downtown core. And then they decided to build a brand spanking new building because one of them was so old that to retrofit it to current norms and standards, it would have been way too expensive. Parking across the world, the issue you're talking about, this issue is being true across the world. And Mm. you see the logos on the side of the car park and you realize that this is not owned by this particular hospital. It's being used to generate funds for somebody and quite how it works, I'm not sure. Okay, let's move on from that to perhaps other things, other areas of advocacy that you're involved in. Can you talk about some of those? Okay, so when the hospital opened in 2015, believe it or not, there were only two wheelchair accessible bathrooms. And this is a problem because this is a hospital that has been deemed by the government as a center for tertiary care. And so our patients committee works in tandem with the complaints commissioner to address systemic issues. The complaints commissioner, they look at specific individual complaints, like say someone lost their dentures when they stayed in the hospital or something like that. But when it becomes something more systemic, such as the parking or now the lack of accessibility, then we can step up to the plate. So part of that was we worked in tandem with another local university that had people that had done some kind of accessibility audit of a local shopping mall to make it more pleasant of an experience for people with disabilities. So they included ramps, they changed the lighting, they changed the flooring and so on and so forth. And so they did an audit at our behest with funds from our budget of the entranceways and made suggestions about where and how to put wheelchair accessibility into the entrances. And going a little bit further, back in 2018, there was an interesting opportunity presented to us in that every two or three years, there's a citywide simulation of mass casualty. Here in Canada, we call that code orange when, say, for example, there's a school bus uh, crash or there's a train derailment and all of a sudden the nearest hospital is faced with 23 people going into their trauma unit. So you need a protocol for that. And because of my work with a Concordia University activity called enable Montreal about making Montreal a more accessibility accessible city, I now had access to people with physical disabilities. And because of my role in the patients committee, I was able to ask the hospital administration, would you consider having the involvement of people with physical disabilities in this citywide simulation? And they said, yes. So They got together a budget to make sure that there were going to be American Sign Language interpreters on site for the focus group prior, the actual citywide simulation on that day, and then also for a post-event debrief. 
And I managed to recruit a couple in their 50s that was deaf and relied on American Sign Language as their main form of communication, recruited a woman with visual impairment that uses a white cane, and also a uh, polio survivor that gets around in an electrical wheelchair. And those four people were to be simulating being parents of children that were being brought into the children's department, uh, children's emergency department, as part of this citywide simulation. And all in all, even that very same day, I think everybody in the medical education and the emergency protocol department were absolutely delighted because you only get good at something when you practice. And there's absolutely no guarantee in any disaster that you only get able-bodied people walking into your emergency department. And so here they were with a chance to work together with these people with these physical disabilities. And on top of that, the only caveat was, uh, the only little deviation from real life, I should say, is that they actually had the uh, ASL interpreters on site for the deaf couple, all someone had to do in the ED was to ask for them, to trigger them to show up. Normally in real life, it might take anywhere up to two hours to find an ASL interpreter, if they can be found at all. And it's really detrimental because even if a deaf adult can read, it's not their first language and they don't understand it as well as signed language. So it's a matter of patient safety as well for them. Mm. I'm still reeling from something you said several minutes ago, and you said that they looked at the number of accessibility options at a local mall compared to the hospital that had two ramps. It wasn't a comparison. It was just that we used the same team right? that had done an audit before. Yeah. It is true that two bathrooms are not sufficient especially when you consider the clientele of a tertiary care hospital, in addition to any staff that might have temporary or permanent disability that would Mm. require uh, a power door. Mm. What was it like at the mall, in the audit of the mall? I think it was something about improving the lighting so people with low vision could see the, the, Mm. the, the contrast better and also whatever choice of tiles that they used, it would better absorb the sound so it wouldn't be as much of an echo, and they definitely put ramps from the uh, subway entrance into the mall, except that the subway entrance doesn't actually have an elevator. So mm. it's, it's not clear that the wheelchair users can benefit all that much. And that's another side story, but our city needs to also improve the number of subway stations that are accessible. Sure. I guess the point I'm trying to make is that when Joe Public is paying to use a particular place, suddenly a lot of these things are put in place very quickly. Is it true that in your town, you don't have to pay to use the hospitals or there is, there are no charges? We pay through it with our tax dollars. Yes. And this is kind of a tangential point, but The thing about parking is that it varies across the country. And what I was also wanted to add is that there are certain hospitals across the country where they will say to you, oh, well, if you don't allow us to pay for parking, that means that we won't have the budget to hire 50 nurses. So 
There are some jurisdictions which will allow the revenue from the parking to be used towards the operational budget. That's not our case here in Quebec. Whatever funds that are generated from the parking is for the upkeep of the parking structure, and it is not to be used to fund extra nurses or ORs or whatever. So mm. maybe that could be driving the presence of this persistent barrier to access to care parking. That's just a side note. We hear this a lot that where something is paid for by tax dollars, that the public has very low expectations when they actually use that service because they don't see the check being handed over. They don't see the money being handed over to provide that care. And the problem with that, of course, is that somebody paying and paying quite heftily in order for that service to be provided. And the standards that we would expect at a mall should be at least the standards we should expect uh, in our public places, hospitals, clinics, whatever it happens to be. So I hear this a lot, even in my setting, and I certainly heard it in the NHS in the UK when I worked, that people were saying, well, they're not paying for this, so it, it, they can take what, the, what they're given. And you have to argue they are paying for it and paying for it very heftily through the tax, this taxation system. And that's an education that is required not just for the public, but for those providers and managers of those institutions that take the view that, well, they're not paying for it. Hmm. Interesting. Although... Now that you mentioned the thing about shopping malls, I'm hard pressed to find a shopping mall that does not have an elevator, <laughs> at the very least. Yes. And most modern shopping malls probably have accessible bathrooms. Yes, because or, the retailers who run the stores there will not have it said that they, their customers could not access their shops because of those lack of those facilities. And yet we find time and again that the doctors who would allow you to go and not be fed because of the policy, or at least turn a blind eye, don't see that this is impacting on your ability to access the care for your child. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So why don't we tangent from private versus public to mm -hmm. say that at least here in Canada, dental care is not part of the public health care package. It's variable. Some provinces will cover children's dental care up until here, it's until age 10. Mm. <laughs> and I think there are other provinces that might even stretch it out to age 25 in certain circumstances. Anyways, all this to say that another one of my patient advocacy uh, roles is with Choosing Wisely Canada. And how this ties into dental care is out of my three children, the eldest a few years ago had his wisdom teeth removed. Very common rite of passage for a lot of young adults. And I was there to accompany him on this appointment. And when he was a bit groggy, but waking up, uh, the assistant came over to me and gave me a prescription for his painkiller medication. And it was for Percocet. And my eyes flew up. Because with my work with Choosing Wisely Canada, I knew that this was a bit too extreme. So I pushed back. And then she suggested, how about Tylenol 3 with codeine? And that was still too strong for my liking. So finally, my eldest, who had good health and no complications during the procedure, was quite happy with a couple of tablets of naproxy, 
He just needed one or two doses of naproxen, and he was good with that. But I was so shocked that she was so casual and nonchalant with giving me these prescription for Percocet that I think later that same weekend, I emailed or called uh, the staff advisor that I work with at Choosing Wisely Canada saying, I can't believe that I just saw this happen. And I have to, what could we do to make sure that the general public doesn't think that this is the standard way to go? A lot of Canadians, their first encounter with opioids, and it's very much in the news these days everywhere, right? The opioid crisis, their very first encounter with opioids will be in the dentist's chair. And we don't want people to think that it's normal. So with the network of Choosing Wisely Canada, I teamed up with the head of the Canadian Association for Hospital Dentists, and we wrote an op-ed about this, and it was carried by the CBC here in Canada. And I think there was even a a professor of uh, ethics uh, for the dental school out in Dalhousie in Halifax that said they were going to include my article as part of their course curriculum. So we're hoping that that was my contribution to try and have that conversation that if someone is going to give you Percocet for some uncomplicated dental extraction, you should really think twice. Because it's not negligible the number of young teenagers that fall into the trap of using of opioid use disorder mm. as a that as their gateway to the dental treatment. I understand. Like in your part of the world, we don't have free dental care in Australia either, at least not yet. And I must tell you a really sad story. Like your family, my son also had to have his wisdom teeth removed. And we live in a very nice suburb in Melbourne. So we brought him along to the dentist and he was taken in to have his wisdom teeth removed. And the bill was going to be something like $2,000 for this particular surgery. So I'm sitting waiting for him in the waiting room. And this young lady comes into the waiting room. It's a small room, so there was no privacy. So I could hear what was being said. Mm. And she said to the receptionist, I'm, oh, I'm just here to check how much it is for a dental checkup. And the dentist uh, said, well, are you insured? And, and she said, no. And she said, well, we charge 200 and something dollars. And the woman just looked completely browbeaten and said, oh, in that case, in that case, I'll just, I'll just go. Thank you. And I felt terrible. I felt terrible. Here I was able to take my son's pain away because I had the money. But she, presumably, she could have had impacted wisdom teeth because of the lack of that money would have to suffer the pain. The consequence to our society of her having pain would be she may not be able to work. She may, her work may be impacted. She may not be able to sleep. Her relationships are going to be impacted. The cost to society is enormous for that $200 that she was not able to pay in order to have her teeth simply checked. So it is very sad that certain parts of healthcare are not funded and that we, su- we allow people to suffer because, because it's about something that's regarded as non-essential. But you try, you try having a meal with impacted wisdom teeth. There's some history in the US and Canada, I, I, at least, I don't know about Australia, about why the dental profession decided to separate in the early 1800s when they were in their formative stages. And it has led to this consequence that dental is private, 
and everything else is not. When Canada was first trying to get our national Medicare system started in the 1940s and 50s, there was actually backlash from some of the doctors that wanted to keep it private. And I'm thinking, thank goodness it didn't happen. But I remember reading in uh, the Toronto Star a number of years back that small business owners also have trouble accessing dental health care insurance. Perhaps they don't have it because it's a matter of cash flow. And they wrote about this story of a, uh, a convenience store owner. It happened to be a South Korean fellow and his wife somewhere in Toronto. But because he was allowing his teeth to get into a really bad state because he didn't have the two or $3,000 to do whatever dental treatment, he eventually went blind because the infection that was in the teeth or the gums, well, your, your teeth don't know that you're sep- the teeth are separate from the body, even if the dentists <laughs> keep it separate. So as a result of him becoming blind, they lost the store. His wife had to take care of him. And so society as a whole pays for the fact that because of that historical reason with very specific context that no longer applies in modern day world, we have these terrible uh, situations. Mm. I think it was one of my previous guests that questioned the use of the word business when it comes to medicine and healthcare and said there's something quite obscene about the use of that word in the context of dealing with people's pain in the context of dealing with people's ability to make a contribution to society, that there is a lot to be said for healthcare to, for it not to cost you when you're in pain, to have that pain taken away, for, you, mm-hmm. for it not to cost you to park your car where you're going to get that pain dealt with, let alone the drugs and surgeries that are going to be offered to you to take it all away when you get there. Amy Ma, it's been a joy speaking with you. Where can people find you? Where can we find out more about you? Where can we find you online? I post articles from time to time on LinkedIn, and you can find me on Twitter. My Twitter handle is C-T-Z-E-N underscore improver. We so will, that's the best way to find me. Wonderful. We, look, we will put all of that in our show notes to accompany this podcast and uh, we wish you all the very best and I'd love to have another conversation with you about other issues that we've only just touched on but I'm conscious of your time and I hope that you have a wonderful day. Thank you very much Moyes. It's been a pleasure and thank you very much for inviting me. The Journal of Health Design. Better health by design. Visit us at the Journal of Health Design dot com.